We're going to start a brand new series called Arrivals and Departures. And how many of you guys know that in our life, we go through, we have a lot of arrivals in our life, and we have a lot of departures in our life. Sometimes relationships can come into our life for a season, and then they can leave our life. Uh, sometimes opportunities will come in and arrive in our life, and then uh, maybe, how many of you guys have ever missed an opportunity, right? I mean, it just, it, it kind of went away. Uh, People can come into our life, even family members, and we, we grieve sometimes when departures happen in our life. And so this is a big topic. Some of them are wonderful uh, arrivals and even departures as we send people out, and then others can be quite sad. And so we, we uh, kind of live that day by day and week by week just throughout our life. But as I said, we're in a new season, and, and arrivals usually involves some sort of waiting period. I mean, I, the, when I thought about this and I started to prepare this, I thought about what it was like, and I remembered when I first heard that my wife was pregnant. Like, we knew that something was coming, right? And so we had a waiting period, though. And how many of you guys, like, hate waiting periods, right? I mean, it's like, we hate that. But almost every arrival starts with a waiting period. And what you do during the waiting period is important. And so when, when we heard the news, we began to, I mean, whenever you hear the news like that, you begin to prepare. You begin to buy stuff for this baby that you haven't held yet, right? You begin to, I mean, I remember the baby's first Christmas without even holding the baby and the baby seeing the Christmas tree. We had a baby's first Christmas, you know, on our heart. We were like thinking that. We, you begin to prepare the room for the, the child and you begin to do all of these preparations um, when you have this arrival coming, for me, I started gaining sympathy weight. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Like as she was gaining weight, I was gaining weight. I'm like, I'm not a seahorse. I'm not pregnant. I don't know what's going on here. And so I don't even know if that was appropriate to say, but, <laughs> but all these things start to happen in this waiting time. And, but, but imagine waiting for something for thousands and thousands of years. Now we can't do that as a human, but we can do that as humanity. And humanity waited for thousands of years. So just imagine hearing for generations something that you had been waiting for, for generations. And, been, and things had been prophesied. And things had been talked about for thousands of years. And we're in a season like that right now where we're reminded of that arrival. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many of you guys are thankful for that arrival, right? But that arrival, yeah, amen. The arrival was waiting for thousands of years, and all these prophecies about the child. Now, some of you guys may be thinking, I'm talking about this child. We have a picture of it. <laughs> How many of you guys do not have a clue what this thing is? This must be a very confusing moment for you right now. I'm like, what are you talking about? Well, <laughs> my, no, we're not talking about the prophecies about this child. My family gets together every single Sunday night, and, and my son and daughter-in-law come over, and we watch this show, Mandalorian, and, and we get together, and we all watch it. And, and so it's, it's my son and myself, and then there's six females. And every time this thing makes any noise, moves any muscle at all. There's all this, ooh, ah, there's tears. They're crying. They're, they're just, how many of you guys are like that, right? This is not the child we're talking about, but there were prophecies about this child, and it's about the child, Jesus, to come. But all sorts of things had to line up. 
It wasn't just like, okay, he's going to come, get ready. I mean, there were hundreds of prophecies that were very specific. And so we get all the way to the New Testament looking backwards. And Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come. See, there were so many things that had to happen in the fullness of time for all of these tumblers to fall into place. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So how many of you guys are thankful for this, that we are no longer a slave, but we are sons and daughters. And if sons and daughters, then we are heirs through God. That's what this arrival was all about. But again, all sorts of prophecies had to line up for Scripture uh, to be fulfilled and for Jesus to, to arrive. Now, here's the thing about prophecies. Prophecies are probability-based. So what I mean by that is that if I were to, to stand up here and to prophesy and to come up, like, hey, guys, get ready. You're, you're all seated. I'm going to prophesy something's going to happen. Tomorrow, the sun will rise. From our perspective, the sun will rise. How many of you guys know that's not much of a prophecy because it's pretty probable that's going to happen, right? But if somebody were to prophesy that 500 years from now, we're going to have a presidential election, if we're still doing it that way. 500 years from now, we're going to have a presidential election and a guy named Joe Bob Williams III will be elected as president and it happened. How many of you guys know that would be pretty incredible, right? There, the Bible is full of prophecies just like that about Jesus that happened like a thousand years afterwards. Very specific things. The Bible is incredibly packed, filled with prophecies just like that. Now, years ago, I heard of a guy named Josh McDowell. How many of you guys have heard of Josh McDowell? Uh, and he has this, and I wish I could show you the whole thing, but we'd be here for hours. But he has this thing where he, he, begin, he begins to unfold what God did through all these prophecies and how incredible it is that God specifically narrowed down who Jesus would be, who the Messiah is, and how incredible it is that all these prophecies lined up. And so I want you to take a listen to this because it's pretty cool. Now, let's see God writing this address. It all starts out before recorded time, and it says in Genesis 3.15, he'd be born of the seed of the woman. You say, well, Josh... That's nice. Well, look, every single person in the scripture, other people, was always the seed of the man. The only one in scripture to be born of the seed of the woman was the Messiah. Why? The virgin birth. The only one. So first, seed of the woman. Then we go down to recorded time. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Do you realize that all nations of the world can be traced back to one of these three individuals? A lot of people don't realize that. Now God eliminates two-thirds of the nations of the world when he says that my son will be of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem. And then the lineage of Shem, there were many lines of descendants. Now God uh, eliminates all of them but one. When he says that my son will not only be of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, but the descendants of Abraham, who we called out the Ur of the Chaldees. Now Abraham had eight children, two by Sarah. Now God eliminates seven-eighths of the sons of Abraham. Now think of this. I brushed my teeth this morning. I've been having trouble with them ever since. Uh, I have a stutter. It only comes out when I speak. But statistically, think of the implications of this. He now eliminates seven-eighths 
of the descendants of Abraham, when he says that my son will not only be the seed of the woman, the descendants of Abraham, but the line of Isaac. Now Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. Now God eliminates 50% of the line of Abraham and Isaac when he says that my son will be the seed of the woman, the descendants of Abraham and the line of Isaac. Now Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and I'm getting a little behind myself here. And now God eliminates 50% of them when he says that my son will be the seed of the woman, the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac and the line of Jacob. Now Jacob had 12 sons, out of which came the 12 tribes of Israel. Now think of this statistically. Now God eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel when he says that my son will not only be the seed of the woman, the descendants seed of the woman, the lineage and the sons of Abraham, the line, of Isaac, the line of Jacob, and the tribe of Judah. Now within the tribe of Judah, there were many family lines. Now God eliminates all the family lines but one. When he says that my son will be of the seed of the woman, the lineage and the sons of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, and the family of Jesse. Now Jesse had eight children. Now think of this statistically. Now God eliminates seven eighths of the family line of Jesse. When he says that my son will be the seed of the woman, the lineage of the of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, and the family of Jesse, and the house of David. And then we go down to about 1012 BC in Psalm 22 with a very unusual prophecy where now God says, my son will not only be of the seed of the woman, the lineage of the of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, the house of David, but he will be crucified. His hands and his feet will be pierced against a tree. That's 1,012 B.C. Come on, Josh, a lot of people were crucified. Yes, but folks, you got to understand, that method of crucifixion was not put into effect until 800 years later by the Romans. And then God narrows it down further. And one day, there were 29 prophecies fulfilled. It's all documented. All this is documented in the big book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And now, God, these are seven prophecies in one day he fulfilled. In Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11, when now God says that my son will be the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the sons of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, family of the house of David, be crucified, but he'd be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces, not 29.99, 30 pieces of silver, not gold. Now think of this, another 50%, not gold, silver. It'd be thrown on the floor, not placed at the table. It'd be in the temple, not in the market, and it'd be used to buy a potter's field. And then God narrows it down further. Of all the cities of the world, and Micah 5, 2 eliminates them all but one, a small city of less than a thousand people for the entrance of the Messiah into humanity. When he says that my son will not only be the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the of Abraham, line of Zion, line of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of Jesse, house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, thrown on the floor, in the temple, used to buy a potter's field, but he'd be born in that little tiny city of Bethlehem Ephrata. And a professor once said, come on, Josh, if God was that smart, he could tell when it was going to happen. I said, he did. You say, what? Yeah. In Malachi 3, you might call it Malachi, but in Malachi 3, <laughs> God narrows it down further when he gets the timeline. He says, my son will be born of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, the house of David, be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, thrown on the floor, in the temple, used to buy a potter's field, born in the city of Bethlehem, Ephrata, and it'll all take place before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When was that? 70 AD. Whoa. You ought to see it when I do all 333. It takes me an hour and 12 minutes to go through all of them one after another. 333 prophecies, all fulfilled in one person. 
professor said to me, Josh, it's all a coincidence. I mean, <laughs> I love the look on his face at the end. I mean, you guys know that's pretty incredible. And we didn't get into it. We didn't hardly get into it. So there was a, a professor one time. I love this illustration to help us think about it because if you, there was a professor one time who decided to run the statistics on just eight of the prophecies. Like, what if just eight of these prophecies about Jesus in Scripture were fulfilled, fulfilled in, and ran statistical probability of eight of them being fulfilled in one person? And he came up with the number statistically of one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And we don't have a, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that number. And so, uh, I, so somebody came up with a way for us to try to wrap our mind around this. And this is, I just think this is fun to try to imagine this. But they, they said it this way. They said, take a silver dollar and, and make, you know, paint it red or put a red X on it or something like that. Go to the state of Texas, put the silver dollar anywhere in the state of Texas that you want to place it. Then fill up all of the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Blindfold a person. Let them go anywhere that they want to in the state of Texas where they think it might be. And in one shot, pull, reach their hand down and pull out that red silver dollar. He said that's similar to the statistical probability of one in 10 to the set with 17 zeros behind it. How I many you guys know we have no box for that, right? It's pretty incredible, isn't it? That all these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's hard for us to comprehend those odds. It just shows the truth of Scripture and the accuracy of the prophets. And how many of you guys know, it's pretty amazing when you think about what God did and this arrival and all this waiting and all these prophecies and all these things. And I think we're somewhat similar in our own lives. I think what we would like God to do in our life, and I think how we would like God to interact in our life, is that we would like God to prophesy everything in our life and lay it out with that exact accuracy in our life. And we want to know everything that's going to happen in our life. And we want to have it so predictable, just like Jesus' arrival. That's how we act. That's how we pray. That's how we interact with God. Is we want everything to line up exactly. And we want God to prophesy about our life and to reveal. And, and there, listen, there are times when God still, how many of you guys believe that God does prophesy into our life, right? I've had prophetic words in my life that are very accurate, very specific that have happened. And of course, we do have the promises of God. How many of you guys know we have the promises of God that we can count on, right? I mean, there are promises all through Scripture that we can know are going to happen because the promises are true and God is not a man that he should lie, according to Scripture. So we do have God prophesying into our life and we do have these promises of Scripture and that is great, but I think we have a slight problem. When we desire God to be so predictable Listen, all those prophecies were about Jesus and we want God to have the same accuracy of prophecy laid out in our whole life so that we can just know what's gonna happen every single day. And when that happens, when we want a predictable God, what happens, and I've seen it in a lot of people, we want God to be so predictable, we lose our fascination with God. And when you lose fascination with God, frustration sets in. And I've seen this happen over and over and over again. People get frustrated with God because he's not predictable as they thought. And then we lose our fascination with God. 
And let me just say it this way. This is how I felt like I was supposed to say it. That God is always reliable, but God is not always predictable. Let me tell you what predictable means. Predictable dictionary says this, behaving in a way that's expected. Now, a lot of us, that kind of sounds good about God. Like God should behave in a way that I expect. Or maybe it doesn't sound so good. But yet most of us want a predictable God, that God would behave in the way that I expect God to behave. Now let me give you the definition of reliable. Reliable is simply the quality of being trustworthy so that we can say God is always reliable, but God is not always predictable. And that's a good thing, and I'll show you why that's a good thing here in a minute. But reliable and predictable are two different things. We want a predictable God, but what we get is a faithful God. We want a God who would prophesy everything that's going to happen in our life so we don't have to figure it out. And then what happens is we lose our fascination with God. And then it turns into frustration with God because God wasn't as predictable as we thought he was going to be and he didn't do the things and behave the way that we expected him to behave specifically in our life. And we've lost the mystery of God sometimes. Do you know this whole incarnation, God in the flesh, is called a mystery? But as as children, we, we can readily accept the mysteries of God. Because the Bible says, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but the scripture says that we are supposed to approach God with a childlike faith. But as we grow up, we start to want rational and we start to fixate on why isn't this this way and why isn't that that way. And we try to overthink and overfigure it out. And I'm not saying God doesn't want us to use our brains because he does. But what I'm saying is that somewhere along the way, we lose our fascination with God. And the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, they they had an awe of God because they had a childlike faith because they were willing to, they they just understood this, that God could behave any way that he wanted to behave. That God could could act in any way that he wanted to act because he's God. How many of you guys know this? That God doesn't need theologians to do miracles. He can do miracles without theologians. He just needs someone who's going to, to believe in his trustworthiness and in his faithfulness. And so that's why I find it fascinating that, that many times these shepherds, they, they weren't theologians. They, weren't, they, just, they saw God and they were like, yeah, if that's God, he can do what he wants. He's God. He can do anything. And so what happens is we, we've, we've put God in a box, And when we put God in a box of our predictability, well, God ought to act this way. God ought to be this way in my life. God, I I need to see all the prophecies about my life in complete accuracy before I will follow God or I'm gonna be frustrated with God. What happens is we put God in a box. It's time to open God up out of the box, amen. It's time for us to take the lid off. It's time for us to take our demands off a little bit. And when that happens, when we set aside and we lay aside and we allow God to be a little unpredictable in our life, what happens is God, and this is the next, next thing I want you to catch, that God is a God of surprises. God is a God of surprises. Do you realize this? No, see, this is what's so hard for us. We, we've come into such a routine in our life with God and such a routine in our expect, expectations of how we want to live our life that we've lost this sense of adventure with God, that God is a God of surprises. 
And again, I find it interesting that God didn't reveal himself to the Pharisees in the same way that he revealed himself to these shepherds who were out in the field or to the, the ancient Eastern Magi who were Gentiles. Because the Pharisees' mistake was that they put a lid on God. They put a box on God. They said, this is how he's going to come. This is how he's going to act. This is what he's going to do. And they had a wrong expectation. Some of them believed that he was going to come and create a a military solution. Some of them believed he was going to come and create a political solution. Some of them believed he was going to come and actually become king. And he didn't come in any of those ways. And so they didn't see it coming. But God has a way of surprising people. So there's a, uh, one approach to God is this theolo- theology of dissection in which we make God manageable by reducing him to a set of theological propositions. How many you guys know we're good at this? We've educated everybody as much as we can. We have classes, we have all these types of things to, to try to understand all the theological propositions and, and all the un, you know, principles and we should do those things to the degree that we don't push God out. <laughs> A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, when we do that, this theology leaves us with a God who can, listen to this, who can never surprise us, who can never overwhelm us, who can never astonish us, who can never transcend us. You see, we've come up with a God that we can manage, that we can predict, that we can expect a certain behavior of. And when we do that, we've lost our fascination with God. Because God is so much bigger than all of that. But so many of us miss it because we've kept God in a box. So what happens? Jesus comes on the scene and the Pharisees missed it because they said, well, we didn't see that coming. We didn't see it happening that way. Even with his own disciples, Jesus told them over and over again that he was going to die and be crucified and raised from the dead in one way or the other. And when it happened, they totally missed it. They just, they didn't see it. They're like, we didn't see that coming. Then when he goes to to leave and his big departure and he says, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. It's going to be better that I leave and leave you with the Holy Spirit. And why? They didn't see that one coming. And so many times we miss what God wants to do in our life because we have a certain thing that we expect him to do. And when he doesn't behave that way, we think that can't be God. I'm not going to participate in that because God acts like this in my life. And we miss it. But I'm telling you, God is a God of surprises. I remember when I was a kid, some of my brothers may remember this moment, but I remember when I was a a kid, we didn't have a lot when we were kids, but we didn't really know that so much because my parents did an awesome job making us feel like everything we had was, was taken care of, and it really was. But there was this one time, moment in time, when I remember my dad coming through, and he said something like this. He said, he said, surprises are in the air. I don't know if you guys remember that or not, but I remember he said, surprises are in the air. And it seemed like it went on for a day or two or something. He would just go through, surprises are in the air. And I can just imagine and just picture the way my dad kept saying it, you know, and he was, you could just see the gleam in his eyes, surprises are in the air. We didn't know what that meant. And so as kids, we were all excited. And then one day he pulls up with this trailer and on the back of this trailer was all sorts of things. It was a brand new couch and all sorts of things that, that he had somehow found a way to, to, to get that we never, you know, never had before. And he, he gets out and he's got one of those big camcorders. How many of you guys know, like the news camcorders, right? The big ones that come on your shoulders that fits the whole VHS tape in, right? And he's recording us and I'm serious. And he's recording us and, and our reaction. And we're just like surprises in the I believe God is a God who, is, who, who would say about your life, surprises are in the air. 
Can you imagine the joy of God? Do you, you, can you imagine the joy of God planning a surprise for you? I just imagine the joy that my dad had and he was planning the surprise and even though we didn't know what it was, he knew what he was doing behind the scenes and he was all excited and he was like, I can't wait until they realize what I've been planning for their life. Just imagine if he had been planning all of that and he shows up with the camcorder and we're like, that can't be dad. <laughs> dad would never do that, you know? And yet that's what we do with God sometimes. Have you, do you remember a time when you planned a surprise for somebody and you were so excited? Can you just imagine the feeling? I'm telling you, God has that feeling about us. But so many of us have lost this element of surprise with God and it's been, it's been taken out of our relationship with God because we demand predictability with God. We demand that God would behave in a way that we expect. We demand that God would do what we think he should do, but I can tell you this, and let me just say it with a little bit of an edge on it, that, that surprises are in the air. That God is a God that he wants to surprise us. And we should have an expectation that God is going to surprise us, and if we don't, then our God is pretty small because we've already figured him all out. We already know what he will do. We already know what he won't do, and, and we don't really need to interact with him much further than that. And if he doesn't do what we want him to do, we're frustrated with him. But when you have an expectation that God will surprise you, when you have an expectation that God is bigger than what you think, when you have an expectation that God may be planning something that you don't know about and he's working behind the scenes with joy, do you know that, that God has joy? God is the inventor of joy? That God is working behind the scenes with joy on your behalf? Do you know what, when we open that up, you know what happens? Hope starts to come again. See, a reason a lot of people have lost hope is because you have expected God to do certain things and you've, you've gone into a routine with God and you've gone into this God of predictability and you've lost your fascination with God and you've become frustrated and your hope meter went from here down to here because you don't have much to hope for anymore because you've already got it figured out or you're frustrated that it hasn't happened. But when you open up the box to a God of surprises, all of a sudden, hope shoots through the roof. Now, I love these videos uh, from the Bible Project. They have this definition of hope uh, that I believe is really helpful. So check it out. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavahs for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kavah and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? 
In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find the same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope that people can be reborn to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is, but biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. All right, so why is that important? Why is hope so important? Here, here's why hope is so important. This is how I, I was led to, to kind of share this. Because hope is the womb of faith. Hope is the womb of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Hope precedes faith. If you're going to have faith, hope has to be present. There, hope is like a container for which legitimate faith, sustainable faith, I, I believe, can be birthed and can, be, and can grow. It's kind of like an environment for that to grow in. And what happens is when you lose hope, bad things happen. <laughs> I mean, when you lose hope, you're going in the wrong direction is what I'm saying. And, but 
so hope is like this womb of faith. And in, our, in the, the, the story that we've been wait, watching and waiting for in, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 1, Verse 30, we see Mary, it says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What I'm saying is, if, if God is going to start something new, conceive something in you, if God is going to uh, birth faith, new, new opportunity for faith in you, Hope has to be the container. Hope has to rise. Hope in Jesus has to be present in order for faith to be sustainable, for faith to grow, for faith to, to continue on. And so many people have lost hope. And like I said, when you lose hope, bad things happen. Remember, there was another prophecy about a child back in the Old Testament. How do you guys remember this one? When God came to Abraham and came to Sarah. And he prophesied that they would have a child and that that child, that, that through that lineage, the, the nations would be blessed. And so God gives them a promise. God gives them part of the picture. This is something we hope for in our lives. But God gives, us a part, God gives them a part of the picture. And God gave him a promise. Now watch this. At some point, they lost hope. At some point, Abraham and Sarah, God wasn't as predictable as they thought he was. At some point, God did not behave in the way that they thought God was going to behave on their timeline. And they lost hope. And so what did they do? They, made, they, they did their own thing. They, they came up with their own plan to try to fulfill God's promises. They came up, they created an Ishmael. They had a promise, but God wasn't predictable. They lost hope. Ultimately, faith wasn't there to trust and to believe God for what was next and to believe and to walk in God's purposes. And so they created their own answer. Listen, when you lose hope, you create your own answers to God's promises. When you lose hope, you create your own solutions to God's words over your life. When you create hope, or when you lose hope, you create your own, and, and what this is, you know, we talked about having a childlike faith. Watch where it says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 16. It says, but Jesus called to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. And it says, for su to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is he saying there? You need to have a childlike faith. Let me tell you, God calls us to a childlike faith, not a childish faith. Childish faith is when you create your own answers to God's, problem, God's promises. When you try to solve the problem by your own solution. It's when you try to fulfill the promises of God apart from God. Because you're trying to say, I want what I want. I want God to be predictable. I want this thing to be fulfilled on my timetable, how I want to see it happen. And so that's called a childish faith. But God calls us to a childlike faith. Where we simply receive God for who he is. Worship team, would you guys come back up as we get ready to close? Here's, here's really what I want to leave with you and deposit with you. What if, what if God wanted to do something in you in this new season that you did not predict? And here's what I don't mean. What I don't mean is, well, I had my expectations of how my life is going to go and it hasn't been going that way. And so now I've settled into, well, maybe it's just not going to happen. I'm not saying get back to the predictions you previously had about God. What I am saying is what if God was going to 
do something and behave in a way that you did not predict at all, that you never predicted? What if God was going to legitimately surprise you in this next season? I say that because God is so much bigger than what we have been led to, to allow ourselves to believe. And sometimes we have to shatter the box altogether and we have to start brand new altogether because I believe God wants to do some surprising things in us, but we have to become fascinated with God once again. We have to have hope in God once again. We have to believe that God can behave in any way that he wants and that he is unlimited. What am I saying? I'm saying with men, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I mean all things. God meant all things. And when we've settled into a certain way of God behaving, we have lost our hope. And when you lose hope, you, you get frustrated and you try to create your own solutions to God's uh, promises in your life. God is always reliable, but he's not always predictable. God is a God of surprises and hope is the womb of faith. Would you guys stand up with me? Because I think some of us, I've talked about repentance late, lately a little bit. And I think some of us may need to repent about the way we've been thinking about God. And here's the way, and I've shared this before, but here's the way a lot of people think about repentance. Well, first of all, it's a bad thing. You must have done something really bad. And if you have to repent, you know, that shame on you. You know, that's how we think of repentance. And then some of us will think of repentance this way. Like I'm going this direction in my, my behavior. And if I'm going to repent, I need to do a 180 and start going this way in what I'm doing. But that's not biblical repentance. But yet most people are like, okay, well, I need to repent. And so we try to, tr try to change what we're doing. But that's not biblical repentance. Some people will say, okay, well, it's maybe the, it's, it's what I'm thinking. You know, it's my thoughts. And, and we begin, well, I've changed my thoughts. And changing your thoughts is good as part of renewing your mind. But that's not the totality of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is, is not just changing what you're doing. It's not just changing what you're thinking, but it's changing the way you are thinking and going a new direction. And some of us need to change the way we've been thinking about God in our life. We, we've been expecting God to be predictable. And I can tell you, sometimes he's unpredictable. But he is oh so faithful. Sometimes we've been frustrated with God because just like Abraham, he's given us some inklings of what we're supposed to do or what he wants to do. But he didn't behave on our timeline like we thought he should. And so we lost hope and we've been trying to create solutions to God's promises in our life on our own, apart from God. We just need to repent about the way we've been thinking about God. Because how many of you guys know that we could work a thousand years to try to make, make God's promises happen in our own strength? Or how many of you guys know that God in one second could open up a door that we never saw coming, but we never will see coming if we hold on to the way that we have our hearts set and the way we think it's gonna happen. What am I saying? I'm saying God is a God of surprises. God is a God of surprises. Can we take the lid off God for just a little bit? Maybe you need to close your eyes for just a moment. Think about what your expectations are, your, your predictions about God's predictability. What would happen if all of that were just set aside for just a moment? And what if you could see, I, I just see right now like this big blackboard with an eraser and the chalk of all of your calculations and, <laughs> and predictably in your timeline and here's what's gonna, I could just see it and, and there's this big eraser and God comes along and fills in something you never saw coming. Oh man, 
better than what you think. You need to let this rise up in your heart. God wants to do something in your life better than what you predicted he would. Better than what he, you predicted. Because God is a God of surprises. So Lord, we, we just lean into you right now. Our hope is not in our desires. Our hope is simply placed in you. Because in you is where we find our joy. In you is where we find our purpose. In you is where we find our fulfillment. In you is where we find everything that we need. So Lord, I just speak over these people right now, over every single one of us, let hope rise up in us today. Where heads have been, been hung low, Lord, you are the lifter of our head. Or where discouragement has reigned, we bind it in the name of Jesus and we say let the joy of the Lord, the hope of God, flood into every heart right now in the name of Jesus. Or where we have put a limit on what is possible in our life and where we have wanted you to be predictable on our time, God, in our way, Lord, we just set that aside and we say, Lord, surprise us. God, surprise me with what you want to do in my life. Surprise me in a way, Lord, I know that you can do things that I could never do. So Lord, surprise us today. We worship you, not as a God in a box, but a God who has unlimited love, a God who has, a God who is over all, above all, who created all. And we worship you as that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time.